over the last year, uh, we've all had to think a lot about authority. <laughs> you may not have realized you, you've been doing that, but you have. <laughs> Let me uh, give you some examples. There's been loads of ideas, hasn't there, about uh, this virus. So this is another coronavirus introduction. Uh, loads of ideas about this virus, how it spreads, how it should be contained, how it, how it should, be, should be treated. Sometimes those ideas have been in, in conflict with each other, haven't they? Uh, I wonder who have you listened to? Who have you, who have you trusted? Who have you, who have you decided has authority to answer those, those questions? Authority is at the root of questions like, who has the right to tell me what to do? Uh, who, should, who should I obey? Should I wear a mask? <laughs> should I not? Should we gather at chapel? Should we not? We can't answer those questions without thinking about authority. And it's the same, isn't it, with the, the, big, the big questions in life? The big questions in life, what's right? What's wrong? What does it mean to be a, a human being? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? What are we here for? What's our purpose in life? We can't answer those questions without thinking about authority. Who is authorized to, to answer those questions? Who decides? And when it comes to the big and the little questions of authority, there's not much agreement, is there? Everyone has, has their own ideas, and it's clear that as human beings, our relationship with authority and ideas of authority is it's, it's broken. It's a, it's a bit of a mess. Authority is abused. Uh, authority is, is ignored, isn't it? If you're a, a Christian today, you won't be surprised uh, by the broken relationship that we have uh, with authority. If we could rewind the tape right back to the beginning, right back to the start, uh, and go to the Garden of Eden we could see Adam and Eve and they would be stood there and they'd be staring at a tree, uh, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil. And if we could somehow climb inside Adam's mind uh, and see what he was thinking, there'd be lots of questions about authority. Who should I listen to? Who, sh who should I believe? Who, who should I obey? The, the snake? God? Uh, Eve? Myself? Who has authority? If you've not realised yet, what we're, what we're thinking about this morning is, is authority. That's our, our topic. Uh, and we, we see that from the, the passage uh, that I read from, from Matthew 21. Today is, is Palm Sunday. And this passage isn't the usual Palm Sunday passage, is it? Uh, but it's, it's part of the Palm Sunday narrative. Those events take place right after Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. And... The big questions in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday were, were questions about authority. Who, who has authority? You can see that. Look at those opening verses. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? As we look at this passage, we're going to look at it in two, two halves. The, fir the first is a question about authority. 
Who gave you authority, Jesus, to do these things? And as we hear their question, we're thinking, well, what things? What things? Well, just look back into the beginning of chapter one. We've seen that Jesus acts with authority. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that doesn't seem like an act of authority, does it? But Matthew tells us that Jesus is self-declaring himself to be king. So Matthew says this took place to fulfill what the what was spoken through the prophet, say to the daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the fall of the donkey. Jesus is the king who rides a donkey. He's a king who is heading to the cross, but don't let appearances deceive you. He is the king. He, he has authority. He's acting with authority. And the, the crowds initially, they at least recognize his authority, don't they? They get the palm branches down. Hosanna to the, to the son of David. They, they praise him as king, at least initially. And after entering Jerusalem, Jesus continues to act with authority. He goes into the temple. What does he do? He, he turns over the tables of the money changers. He, he drives out those who are buying and selling in the, in the temple. Why, why does he do that? Matthew tells us that the, the temple is meant to be a, a house of prayer. A house of prayer for the nations. A place where God's people would come to, to, to meet with him. And then uh, through that meeting, his presence would be mediated out in, into the world. And the world would know what God was like because his people had met him at the temple. But instead, what was going on at the temple had just become like a charade, a, a show. The temple system was just a, a cover for idolatry and extortion. It was, it was all leaves and no fruit. If you see when Jesus leaves the temple, he curses a fig tree that, that's just like that, that's all leaves and, and no fruit. The temple looked the part. It looked like a place where God was being worshipped. But instead, it was a place where God was being, being robbed of worshipped worship. And so Jesus uh, turns over the temples, turns over the, the tables. Uh, and the whole temple system was, was overseen by these group of people who were questioning Jesus, the elders and the chief priests. They were the authority in the temple. And so they, they want to know, don't they, who gave you the authority to do these things? We can maybe understand their question. Imagine... Uh, if I were to go down to Anfield, that's uh, the home of Liverpool Football Club, uh, and I was to uh, walk into Anfield, and I was to, to knock on the door of Jurgen Klopp's office, he's the, the manager, and I was to say, it's not going very well this season, is it, Jurgen? Uh, if you want to get back to the top of the Premier League, you've got to change some things. I give him some tips about training, tips about match tactics. Uh, what, what would he say to me? If I say, so, excuse me? <laughs> Uh, who are you? Uh, have you? Where's your coaching badges? What, what experience do you have? He'd want to know <laughs> my authority. And, and you can understand, in a way, uh, the question of the, the chief priests and the elders. By what authority do you do these things? They were, the, they were the temple specialists. How does Jesus answer? Well, he doesn't answer straight away, does he? He answers the question with a question of his own. Verse 24, Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. 
John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, Jesus is still addressing issues of authority, but now the spotlight is, is subtly changed, isn't it? Away from Jesus and his authority to, to John the Baptist and his authority. The authority, in a sense, is the same. John is God's authorized prophet. Jesus is God's authoritative king. And if you just turn back to, to Matthew 3, you, you, we see there a little bit about John's ministry. In chapter 3, we meet John the Baptist. He's on the, the banks of the River Jordan. He's baptizing people. And his uh, baptism is a baptism of repentance. And, and all the people in Jerusalem are, are coming out into the wilderness to meet John uh, and to be baptized. Repentance means to change your mind, to, to turn around, to, to change direction. And John's saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at, is at hand. The king is coming. And John's ministry is, is tied to the coming of King Jesus. He's pointing ahead to the king. He says, there's one coming. I'm not, I'm not worthy to even untie the straps of, of his sandals. The authoritative prophet is, is pointing ahead to the, to the coming king. And as John prepares the way, he's calling people to repent. So his ministry is tied up with, with, with Jesus. So Jesus asks this, these religious leaders a question about John's authority. That's it. Is it come from heaven or is it of, of human origin? Who, who authorized John? That's not, it's, not a, it's not a hard question, is it? But the, the religious leaders find it a hard question to answer. It's not a hard question. It's the kind of exam question you would like. It's 50-50. <laughs> True, false. They can even confer with each other, and they do. They spend some time uh, conferring. And listen to what they say as they discuss this question. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask them, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John is, was a prophet. Can you see what's going on here as the religious leaders uh, discuss this question? They've actually got no real interest in, in finding out the answer to their own question. All they're, all they're interested in is maintaining their own authority. That's what they're about. Uh, they want to stay in, the, in a position of, of power. They want to be the ones at the top calling the shots. See, if they say, yes, John's baptism was from God... Well, then the question is, well, why didn't you believe? Why didn't you get baptized? Well, why didn't they get baptized? Because that would mean submission. That would mean uh, admitting they were wrong and, and turning around, recognizing a, a higher authority. And yet, did you also notice that they, they fear the people? Why do, they, why do they fear the people? Well, it's from the people that they get their authority, isn't it? If the people don't back them, their, their authority is is gone. So they must be careful to say the right things because their authority is, is fragile. And so they, they give this, this kind of on-the-fence answer. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know. We, we don't know. What do we learn from this exchange uh, between Jesus and the, and the Pharisee and this question about authority? I think we learn this. We learn that recognizing authority is not simply an intellectual exercise. It involves the will 
and it means obedience. Recognizing authority isn't just an intellectual exercise. It involves the will, and it means obedience. See, these religious leaders don't ask the question about Jesus' authority because they lack information. They have plenty of evidence. They, they, they know whose authority uh, Jesus has. They've had the testimony of John the Baptist. We, we've seen that. God's authorized prophet. They've, they've got the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures who, who, who foretold the coming of, of John and then the coming of, of Jesus, the Christ. Over and over again in Matthew's gospel, he writes, this took place to fulfill dot, 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 and he quotes the Old Testament. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They also had the testimony of the Father, at his baptism, the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove, and the voice from heaven proclaimed, This is my Son, with whom I love, with him I am I'm well pleased. They had the teaching of, of Jesus. After Easter, we're going to start on the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, people marvel at Jesus' teaching. Why? Because he, he taught like one who had authority. They had Jesus teaching. They also had the miracles. Even on this Palm Sunday, I don't know if you noticed, just look back in chapter 20, when right after Jesus turns over the tables in, in the temple in chapter 21, it says that he heals the blind and the lame. Even there in the temple on that day, there's the witness of the, the miracles. In the Old Testament, it's, it's celebrated that the healing of the blind and, and the lame. That's what God does. And then soon after these events on Palm Sunday, just a week later, the chief priests and the elders will be confronted with evidence of Jesus' resurrection. That the Christ who they crucified three days later is alive. And Jesus is going to meet his disciples on, on the mountain. He's going to say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. These religious leaders don't lack evidence. They don't just require more information. Why do they refuse to recognize Jesus' authority? Well, because they want to be the boss. They want to decide what's right. You may be uh, listening today and you don't yet believe in Jesus. And the reason you think you don't believe in Jesus is because there's just not enough evidence. If, you, if you'd heard him teach, if you'd seen the miracles... If you'd seen him after his resurrection, then you would believe. Don't be so sure. This, these religious leaders had all of that. Unbelief is not simply a, a, due to a lack of evidence. It's, it's deeper than that. Because recognizing authority is not an intellectual exercise, but it involves the will and it means obedience. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, he proclaims himself to be king. All authority is given to him. He doesn't, we don't make him king. <laughs> he is king. We don't give him authority. He has all authority. And the resurrection is God's declaration to this world that Jesus is the, the king of kings. And we mustn't think because he rides a donkey because he goes to the cross, that somehow he lacks authority. If anything, it's, it's quite the opposite. 
he can ride a donkey because he has all authority and that is absolutely secure. He doesn't need to come on a war horse. He can go to the cross. He doesn't need to fight with swords because he has all authority and it's completely secure. He can speak the truth even when it costs him his life. He's not just trying to please the people like these religious leaders because he really does have authority. And today as we, as we meet, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has the name that's above every name. And the question that comes to us this Palm Sunday is, do you recognize his authority? Do I recognize his authority? Well, before we answer that question too quickly, we need to look at the second half of the passage, and it's a parable about obedience. Remember, recognizing authority is not just an intellectual exercise. It, it means obedience. Let's look at this parable. It's a, a beautifully simple parable, isn't it? Only three verses. I'll, I'll read it again. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and he said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. A father Two sons and a really simple command. Go and, and work in the vineyard. In the Old Testament, the vineyard uh, is often a picture of, of Israel. And when it comes to working in the vineyard, the first son, he's initially and outwardly rebellious, isn't he? I, I, I'm not going. Maybe he had his own thing to do. He set off down the road, leaving the family farm. But then somewhere along the way, he has a change of mind. Maybe his conscience pained him and he decided to turn back at the end of the day the father finds him there working hard in in the vineyard the second son at least outwardly and initially he looks obedient doesn't he he looks the part maybe he went to the shed and he got out his his tools i don't know what tools you need to work in a vineyard but he gets out his tools and he, and he heads off towards the vineyard it all looks uh, very promising and yet it was just a pretense. His, his words were empty. He never made it even into the vineyard. And so the, Jesus asked the, the chief priests and the elders, which son obeyed the father? And, and here they can answer this question. <laughs> they have to, it's obvious. The first, the, the one who was outwardly and initially rebellious, he was the one who obeyed the father's command. And the lesson of this parable, I think, is that in the end, obedience must be genuine. Good intentions, uh, words, outward appearances are not enough. Obedience must be genuine. And then in verse 31, this seemingly simple parable begins to bite, doesn't it? Jesus says to these Religious leaders, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now we can begin to put identities on the, the first and second son. The first son who's outwardly and initially rebellious, well, that's the tax collectors and the prostitutes. The outcasts, the, the sinners. In the end, they, they recognize God's authority. 
They were the ones being baptized by John in the Jordan and repenting. They changed their minds and they, they come into God's kingdom. That would have been a shocking, shocking statement for those religious leaders. But then even more shocking, the identity of the second son, the one whose obedience was an empty charade. Well, that's the, the chief priests and elders. With their lips, they honor God, but their hearts, far from him. All leaves and, and, and no fruit, they're, they're faking it. And so Jesus says they remain outside the kingdom. Verse 32 gives a bit more of an explanation. Verse 31 tells us why obedience is essential. Because without obedience, there's, there's no way into the kingdom. Verse 32 explains to us what kind of obedience God requires. Verse 32 unpacks and explains verse 31. We're thankful, aren't we, when we come to verse 32, that the obedience that God requires is not perfect obedience. <laughs> if it was perfect obedience to get into the kingdom, well, no one would be in. Religious leaders, tax collectors, prostitutes, everyone would be on the outside, but the Father doesn't require perfect obedience. Praise God as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's going to the cross. The king will die for his people so that there's forgiveness and pardon for those who have failed to show perfect obedience. The obedience that God requires is repentance and faith. That's what the Father wants. Look at verse 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. The response that the religious leaders should have had to John was repentance, a change of mind, a turning around. They should have believed his words that the king is coming. They should have turned to follow Jesus, trusting the forgiveness and the way that he was opening into God's kingdom. That's what God requires of them. And that's what God requires of us too, repentance and, and faith. In a sense, the obedience that God requires, it's not difficult, is it? It just means to recognize that Jesus is the king, to change our, our minds about him, to stop going our own way and to turn and trust him and follow him. And just to keep doing that. That's what the Father requires to trust Jesus and the forgiveness that he brings and to follow him. Let's begin to make some application, just two applications for us this morning as we think about how we respond to this passage. First of all, this passage is a, it's a warning passage, isn't it? It's a warning passage and it warns us that our obedience must be genuine. It's easy, isn't it, to give an initial and outward impression of obedience. Maybe to look back to a time years ago when you heard about the truth about Jesus and you, you made some commitments, some promises to follow him. You heard the call to repent and you said, yes, yes, I'll, I'll do that. But what, about, what about the present? What about today? Not, not the initial and outward show, but what about today? What about this last week? 
Are our lives marked by repentance and faith? At the end, we're going to sing a song, a song about Jesus. Crown him with many crowns. Easy words to sing, easy words to, to agree with. What about our obedience? Is the authority of Jesus evident in the way that we live? Each week we gather, don't we, in Jesus' name, and we come around his, his word to hear him speak. As he speaks to us, do we, uh, do we believe and do we repent? It's easy, isn't it, to fall into the habit of, of listening to God's word, to, to hearing it week by week, uh, maybe to have our, our consciences stirred, maybe to have some intention to, to change, and then to do, to do nothing. It's easy to fall into that, that pattern. It's easy to give the outward signals of obedience, to come here each week to, to say the right things, and for it all to be a shell, an act. No, no one else knows. But the reality is we're living to please ourselves. It's all fake, and that, that, that act can go on for months and months and years and years. All, all leaves and no fruit. When we, uh, when we fake it, we might fool other people, but we don't fool Jesus. And so this passage comes to us this morning as a warning. Obedience must be genuine. And it also comes as a, as a call. This, this passage is a call to recognize that Jesus is king this Palm Sunday. And it's a call that goes out, out to everyone. To those who are like the first son, who are initially and outwardly rebellious. Maybe that's, that's you as you're listening. Maybe that's your response to Jesus up until now. Jesus is king. And you're like those, those men when Saul was crowned king. We're not going to have this man rule over us. You may say Jesus is king, but he's not my king. Well, the call goes to you again this morning to recognize that Jesus is king. Whether you believe it or not, he is. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And the call is to submit to him. And the call goes out to those who, like the second son, whose rebelliousness is, is hidden, who, who are pretending to be obedient, to again, to repent and to trust Jesus. And the good news of this passage is, it's not our initial, not our initial response that matters. It's not what's happened in the past that matters. It's the present. It's how we respond to Jesus today. Repent and trust him and come into his kingdom. And don't put that off. <laughs> you may be tempted to look at this parable and say, if it's only the initial response, that, the initial response doesn't matter, it's the, the final response that matters. Well, I've got time. Have you? <laughs> None of us even know if we, we have tomorrow, do we? On... Uh, the 8th of October in 1871, the evangelist D.L. Moody, well-known evangelist, was preaching uh, to a church in Chicago. 
and he was preaching uh, on a passage in the Easter in the Easter narrative. And the title of his sermon was "What Shall I Do Then with Jesus, Who Is Called the Christ?" He was preaching about the fact that Jesus is is the Christ, and what what will you do with him? And as he drew his message to a close, he uh, he told people to think about it for a week. The week after, he was going to preach on the cross. And he kind of finished his message, and they started to sing the final, final song. And the words of the final song went like this. Today the Savior calls for refuge fly. The storm of justice falls, and death is nigh. And as they were singing this final song, they started to hear the, the sirens of fire engines in the street. And that night, the whole of Chicago burned. Hundreds of people died. Jesus Christ has all authority. Everyone will know that someday. But the call for us today is to recognize his authority. And we we cannot afford to ignore the call of, of Christ our King. Should we pray? Let's pray. Dear Lord, in the quiet, we remember that you know each of us. You see our hearts. You know the reality of our life that's lived before you. And we pray that in your mercy, you would cause us to see the authority of King Jesus. Help us to see him as he is, seated on the throne, crowned with many crowns. King of kings. And Lord, in your mercy, we pray that you would help us to live lives of repentance and faith towards him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.